The It's All Journalism podcast recently celebrated our 600th episode. To mark the occasion, we're going to be giving away a limited number of our It's All Journalism mugs. On February 1st, we'll randomly draw names from our newsletter subscription list and mail the winners their very own mug. If you're already a subscriber to our weekly email newsletter, you don't need to do anything. But if you're not a subscriber, go to itsalljournalism.com to sign up for our newsletter and make yourself eligible for our February 1st drawing. Again, thank you very much for supporting our podcast. Go to itsalljournalism.com, sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and who knows, maybe you'll be drinking your morning coffee or tea or beverage of your choice using one of our It's All Journalism mugs. And sometimes what they wanted to do was at odds with what the newsroom, you know, thousands of kilometers away in New York City was saying, you know, you've got to get the story, you've got to take the photograph, you're not there to act as a aid worker, you're a journalist. And so the margins started to blur and that creates lots of moral tensions. Some journalists have the ability to cover a story knowing that they may be physically or psychologically harmed. What is it in a journalist's makeup that drives them to do this? And how can they recover from witnessing such violence? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Dr. Anthony Feinstein is a Peabody Award winner and Guggenheim Fellowship awardee whose groundbreaking work explores the psychological effects of conflict on journalists. He's written seven books on the subject, including Moral Courage, 19 Profiles of Investigative Journalists, which looks at the psychological impact on journalists of working dangerous and potentially deadly war zones. Dr. Feinstein, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. Usually I talk to working journalists on this podcast, but occasionally I like to talk to people whose work focuses on issues affecting those practicing journalism. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what led you to this focus of your research, the psychological effects of conflict on journalists? So I run a research lab at the University of Toronto, but I also have a clinical practice. And many years back, a journalist was referred to my practice at Shea Ridge. She had a really interesting presentation. She did well with therapy, and I was fascinated by her career. She was a foreign correspondent. She had spent time covering famine and war zones. And while out in the field, she had become psychologically unwell. She didn't address it. She self-medicated with alcohol. On her return to Canada, she had this major breakdown and hence her referral to my clinic. And she was explaining to me that the reason why she hadn't asked for help was she was concerned that she would be pulled from the field and she wouldn't be allowed to go back and do this kind of work. And this is going back, you know, over 20 years. But I was very intrigued by this by this patient of mine and what I thought was a very punitive attitude to how she saw her organization dealing with mental health issues. And so being a researcher, I went into the literature search on the topic of journalists and trauma and emotional well-being. And I never found a single paper. There wasn't a single publication. And so based on this, I shifted gears from my research at the time and wrote a grant application and sent it to the Freedom Forum based in Washington, D.C. And they wrote back and said, this is a really interesting question of journalists and trauma. We'll fund your study. And that became the first ever funded study of journalists, trauma and war and, and mental health. You know, in your research, is there any indication as to what is it about the journalists who puts themselves in, in situations of physical and psychological danger? I mean, the whole question of motivation is very intriguing, and I think it's complex. There are going to be many factors that will motivate people to do this. 
But I think what they all share is they're curious about the world. They want to witness events. They obviously have a lot of skill as a writer or photographer, but they also, they don't want a routine life. That's the other thing, that the nine to five routine is not something that they are going to be comfortable with. They want something that is more flexible, that is more adventurous, that opens up more opportunity for new experiences, et cetera. There's a whole large behavioral literature on, you know, what drives people to do things that are potentially risky. And so, you know, frontline journalists who sustain this career over a long time will have the profile of individuals who want new experiences, different things. They don't want the routine in life. And you can get it by going off and covering disasters, wars, revolutions, et cetera. So I think that's an important factor that's present in the biological makeup. But then, of course, you've got to be good at what you do. You've got to be skilled in writing and skilled as a photographer. Otherwise, you won't sustain anything. Other people will have the same kind of profile in terms of wanting adventure and risk, but they want to climb high mountains or race fast cars, or they're going to be you know, other occupations that are be more compatible with, with their interests. But journalists, they like history. They like being witness to important events, contemporary historians. The ones who do it for a long time do have this drive that comes from, we want something different. We want a more adventurous lifestyle. So now you mentioned, you know, your first patient who, you know, pushed you down this or inspired you to go down this route of research, her attitude toward her place of employment. Is that a type of thing that in your research that you've heard come up elsewhere? Well, when we did our first study, you know, that was notable. We compared a group of journalists who did frontline work, war reporting mostly. They came from big news networks like CNN, BBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, etc. We compared their profile to domestic Canadian journalists who didn't do foreign work. Not surprisingly, we showed more PTSD and depression in the journalists who go off to war. But then we showed something that was really, I think, very concerning, that the journalists who had PTSD and depression were no more likely to get therapy for it than journalists who never had those conditions. So there was this big unmet clinical need in this population. Now, this is going back 20 plus years and things have changed since then, but it was really quite striking. The title of your new book, Moral Courage, Profiles of Investigative Journalists, you know, what do you mean by moral courage? The theory that I have linking all the journalists that I write about is that, once again, motivation is complex, but they share something called moral courage, which I believe is the antidote to something called moral injury. So let me start off with moral injury. And the definition that I like comes from Syracuse University, where they define a condition that can arise from witnessing or perpetrating acts that transgress your moral compass. So witnessing or perpetrating acts that transgress your moral compass or failing to speak out when confronted by these acts. So you can have what we call acts of commission, things that you might do or things that other people do that are morally egregious or acts of omission, failure to speak up, failure to, I should have said something, I should have done something, but I didn't. And when that occurs, the emotions associated with it are things like shame and guilt, and in Zelda's case, anger as well. Now, the military have known about moral injury for a long time, going back to Vietnam, the war in Iraq in 2003, but journalists were much slower to pick up on moral injury as something that is very much part of their profession. And I became aware of it when a colleague of mine and I, Hannah Storm, we did a study looking at journalists covering the big migration crisis in Europe five, six years back. And we didn't find you know, high rates of PTSD or depression, but we found moral injury in journalists that were being asked to make very difficult decisions that came with a moral a moral weight. And if they got it wrong, or they felt they got it wrong, it left them feeling really guilty and ashamed about themselves. So, you know, we started to write about moral injury in journalists. Problem was, no one had looked at this either. 
the military had some really good rating scales for soldiers, veterans with moral injury, but there's nothing in terms of journalists. And so my research went on to develop a moral injury scale for journalists. We call it the Toronto Moral Injury Scale for Journalists, which is out in the public domain. It can be used. It's a way of quantifying moral injury in journalists, because I think it's prevalent and it's distressing to journalists. Your books have focused on journalists who are working overseas or foreign correspondents who are covering wars and conflicts. But I have known many journalists, and I've spoken to many journalists on the podcast who, you know, they cover protests or, you know, they cover riots, they cover dangerous situations, they go to crime scenes, you know, regularly, that's their beat. And on the one hand, you know, they'll tell you their motivation is, well, this is the good story. This is what I want to report. I have a responsibility to report. And then also just my experience as a journalist, this idea that when you go out and you cover something, you're also there for the victims that you're telling the impact that's on their story. And that for me personally, I know that that's a, a motivating emotion sometimes that, you know, once you speak to the victims and, you know, that's a weight you carry with you. And you say, I want to make sure that I tell this story. I want to make sure that people hear that. But, but again, I recognize that's something that, that motivates me. And that's something that could, if you find yourself in a situation like you're covering a disaster or something where it can very quickly overwhelm you. Yes. I would think. Yeah, that's right. And and that's what we found when we looked at the journalists covering the migration crisis, which was they wanted to do their best and tell the story, but they were being called on to fulfill a different role at times. So, for example, if you're down on a beach in southern Europe and there are no first responders and it's just you and there's a boat washing ashore, what do you do? Do you stand there and take the photograph when people are in difficulty or do you put down your camera? Do you wait in and try and help people? And if you do help, how far do you go? Does it mean that you've got to give them money, you've got to give them food? So the journalists were having to make these very difficult decisions with a moral overtone in real time. And sometimes what they wanted to do was at odds with what the newsroom, you know, thousands of kilometers away in New York City was saying, you know, you've got to get the story, you've got to take the photograph, you're not there to act as a aid worker, you're a journalist. And so the margins started to blur, and that creates lots of moral tensions. That became a, a significant problem for journalists. Yeah. How do you respond to that? I mean, there's a rather famous prize-winning photo, I guess, of someone taking a picture of a child dying of, I don't know, it was hunger or disease or something in, in Africa. And some of the reactions that came out of it, it was a very powerful image, and it said a mm. lot. But then it was, well, why didn't he help that person? I know that photograph. That was Kevin Carter's photograph of the of a famine and a kid, and there was a vulture nearby. Yeah. What's the line that the journalist refuses to cross? And what does that mean for them? I mean, you, you can justify it in the sense that it's kind of this feeling that journalists have that, they're, oh, I'm separate from the story. I'm viewing it and I'm taking it in. I'm not a participant. But the fact is you're there and part of your, you know, the same things that are affecting people around you are going to affect you in some way. Who, who were some of the people you spoke to in your most recent book? So I spoke to journalists from Russia, from Belarus, Serbia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Paraguay, Czech Republic, India, Turkey, Iran. Generally, I focused on countries that had terrible records of press freedom because these journalists are the last vestiges of civil society in these countries. These dictatorial leaders have destroyed much of civil society, most of it really. They've gutted the courts, the judges are in their pockets, they've chased the NGOs out of the country, they've quietened much of the media as well. But there are these few lone journalists who are still prepared to speak out, still prepared to say this is wrong. And that's where the whole question of moral courage comes in. Why are they doing this? Where does this motivation come from? 
because as I say, they are often the last remnants of civil society. And they know that by doing it, they are acutely aware that by speaking out and still, you know, accusing their governments of misdemeanors, still calling out the crime cartels, they know that the consequences for them are going to be very severe, but they still do it. And that's for me is moral courage. Through this podcast, I was in a very roundabout way. I was privileged to go to the country, Tajikistan, to teach young journalists how to podcast. But while I was there, you know, I spoke to many journalists and it was my, sort of my first encounter with a different type of press control. It was not so much that there was you know, maybe a boot coming down, but it was more of an economic thing where there were forces and not so much the government, but condoned by the government, economic forces that could, you know, wait against somebody who wrote the wrong type of mm -hmm. story. So you had suppression, not necessarily directly, like somebody coming in and bombing an office or arresting everybody, but more, okay, well, this is the line. If you cross this line, that's it. And one of the things that I took away from it of the journalists, the working journalists I spoke to was, you know, the degree of frustration. It wasn't so much that they maybe couldn't necessarily cover a story. It's just that they had no place to publish it, which is one of the reasons why they wanted to learn about podcasting because they figured that might be a way to uh, still get that message out. Did a lot of the people you speak to, you mentioned these different countries, were they, were they all foreign correspondents or were they people in? No, they lived there. They were local journalists. Yeah. So there's a, a real direct impact to them and their families. Oh, enormous. Enormous. And as you point out, the state can get to journalists in multiple different ways. I mean, obviously they lock them up and they torture them and they beat them, but you can try and break them through the bogus tax audit. You know, you try and ruin them financially or you stop them working or you, there's so many ways that they go about harassing journalists, you know, terrible online harassment, threatening family members as well. So there are multiple awful ways that bad state actors go after good journalists. Yeah. This book and some of your research has been mostly focused on, you know, conflicts overseas and everything. But have you, you know, garnered any information about people who may not be foreign correspondents, but who are working locally? You know, maybe they're a video editor who sees a lot of traumatic video coming from overseas and the effect that might have on them or people who go to crime scenes. Yeah, very much. So the first part you speak about vicarious trauma having to screen terrible images from other parts of the world. And what's really interesting about that is that 10 years back, the American Psychiatric Association, which defines the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, tweaked the stressor criterion and said, there's a new stress for PTSD, which is if in your line of work, you are exposed to visually troubling images, that's now considered enough of a stress to trigger PTSD. Now, the APA is very clear in saying this doesn't refer to the average citizen who watches the news on CNN, for example. But if at your line of work as a journalist, you are looking at these images many times a day, multiple hours during the day, and these are very traumatic images, for some people, that's enough of a stress to trigger post-traumatic stress disorder. And in fact, we showed this in a study that we did with two large news networks that these were journalists who were spending six, eight hours a day looking at what they call user-generated content, these ghastly images sent in by the man on the street with a cell phone, et cetera, things that we don't see on our television because they're too terrible for us to see. But this is what journalists were having to screen. And for some individuals who had a vulnerability for mental health difficulties, that was a trigger for some very prominent PTSD symptoms. So that's an issue. Yeah. The other point that you made, I really want to touch on, I think it's so important, local journalists, you're quite right. Initially, my work focused on journalists who went to war and disaster. But now domestic journalists have really difficult stories to cover. There's the mass shootings in the United States, which is a horror story. 
There's the climate change journalism, so journalists are going to communities that have been devastated by climate change. People have lost everything, you know, towns that have been incinerated or washed away in floods, and they're having to do this work against the backdrop of climate deniers, and they're getting harassed for doing this work. In Canada, you've got the story of the murdered and missing Indigenous woman and the residential schools, which is, you know, a very, very painful story that journalists have to cover. And so the difficult news is no longer, you know, stuff that comes from faraway war zones, but there's a lot of local news that's very traumatic, very emotionally difficult to cover. And the the aspect of now we're in a digital environment where information can be spread so quickly and you're reacting to that, you don't necessarily get the time to... I, you know, I don't think I can step away from this. You've got so many forces going at you that you also have this internal moral compass that, you know, how do you deal with it? So, yeah, how do you deal with it? I mean, how does a, a journalist who, not necessarily even a, somebody in a war zone, but how can someone, you know, maybe recognize that they have a problem or they, they need assistance? Yeah, so that's one of the messages that we put across. You know, we collect data for a purpose. We want to see if there's a problem there and define what the problem is, but then we want to use the data to generate solutions. And if you're not so struggling emotionally, the message is very clear, reach out for help. And I believe that news organizations have a moral responsibility to help journalists if you're asking them to cover very difficult stories. And we know that therapy works. And in the midst of the pandemic, my research group got a request from the from Oxford University, where there's a journalism group saying, can you help us design a study to look at the effects of the pandemic on journalists? And we did it. And we showed that those news organizations that had therapy readily available to journalists had staff that were less anxious, less depressed, with fewer PTSD symptoms, and just psychologically better. And so this is data collected in real time. And this is not complex therapy. This is often just a few sessions of intervention to try and help a person with a particular problem. But putting something like that into the workplace is so helpful. We've got the data to support it. And so the message to journalists is that you are a resilient profession. The majority of journalists will not develop PTSD, will not develop depression, but those who do, it's a significant minority, and their therapy can be very effective. It can help you. So don't delay. Get access to it and use it, because it's, it makes an enormous difference in terms of your, your well-being. My own personal experience in, in the, uh, during the COVID was that you know, I do all of my work remotely, so it you know, didn't necessarily change the way I did my job. You know, Obviously, I faced all the other limitations, but there was also sort of an extra layer of pressure because I perceive this is a really, you know, very important story that people needed that information very quickly and up to date and accurately. And at the same time, you know, that was the same year as a, an election and Black Lives Matter protests. So, you know, mixing all that together, my company sort of recognized that a lot of journalists were struggling with that. We would have, you know, optional, you know, we're going to be having a, a session where somebody's going to come in and talk about, you know, managing stress, you know, recognizing when you need to step away and things like that. So I agree with you that there needs to be some accountability and responsibility in management, but that's not always the case, unfortunately. So I know you mentioned one or two stories, but is there any story that sort of stands out to you that as an example of this is a more a moral choice, an act of moral courage, that had an impact. Yeah, I mean, I think for all 19 journalists in the book, they do. You get each one is, is remarkable because they're working, as I say, in the countries that have terrible records of press freedom in general. They're working in very hostile, difficult environments in which very powerful autocratic rulers come after them and target them, and their lives can be very difficult. And yet they don't buckle, they stand up for it, which comes back to the whole notion of moral courage. 
If the notion of we don't say something, if we stay quiet, that becomes an act of omission. An act of omission can trigger moral injury. Moral injury is very uncomfortable because it comes with feelings of shame and guilt. And so by speaking up, by displaying moral courage, it becomes the antidote to moral injury. That's my hypothesis. But this is one of the really powerful motivating factors. So, for example, take Mohammed Mossayed, who was an Iranian journalist. You know, he would speak about corruption in Iran. And Iran is certainly no democracy. And he was being warned off repeatedly, don't do this because it's upsetting the government. And the newspapers who admired his writing were really scared of publishing him because they knew that you know the mullahs would come after the newspapers. And so they would censor him, they would you know, try and stop him saying things. And so then he went online, he developed his own online following. And tens of thousands of Iranians would follow him because they wanted to know what was going on in their country. And for that, for the government in, the, in Iran, that was intolerable. They locked him up. They locked up his, his girlfriend and they tortured him. The manner of his arrest was so deeply traumatic. They arrested him in his parents' home. And eventually, you know, the poor man was so hounded by the government, he had to flee over the border into Turkey. And he nearly died in the process, having to cross high mountains in the middle of winter. But he would not keep quiet. For him, speaking about corruption in Iran became a mission because he felt that people had to know what was going on. They had to understand where was the vast oil wealth going. It wasn't trickling down to the citizens. It was being used by you know, the government for their own private purposes. And so you have multiple examples of that. You know, the great Zimbabwean journalist, Popo Chinono, same thing. You know, he lives and works in a country that is terribly corrupt, where the government has tried to destroy the media, where all vestiges of civil society have basically been shelled out. But he will not keep quiet. He's become the voice of oppressed people. As he says to me, staying quiet is worse than what the government can do to me. Staying quiet is his sense of moral injury. He can't live with that. He can't live with the guilt that comes with staying quiet. And so he speaks up. And in the process, of course, he gets arrested and he gets treated horrendously. Um, and these, this is the same theme that runs through every single one of these journalists. The one where it ended in an even worse uh, way was with the Russian journalist Anna Polikovskaya, who kept on speaking out against Putin. This man is so bad for Russia. She wouldn't keep quiet about Putin on a very personal level. She'd write in very visceral prose about why she detested him. And people would tell her, you know, to calm down your prose. You know, bad things happen to journalists when you speak out like this. And she, in fact, foretold her own death, but she wouldn't keep quiet. And eventually, you know, they, they killed her. And she was killed on Putin's birthday. So there's a message in how they got to her. So you see this tremendous price that these journalists can pay. But the moral courage... As I say, and I've said it multiple times, in many ways, it's the last vestige. They're the last vestige of civil society in the countries that are profile. Everything else is gone. The name of your book, Moral Courage, 19 Profiles of Investigative Journalists. Anthony, Dr. Anthony Feinstein, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for your interest. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. 
Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>